Hello, I'm Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. It's a great privilege to introduce this podcast. In it, we'll be discussing the paper, Long-Term Cognitive Outcomes of Infants Born Moderate and Late Preterm, which is by Odd, Eamond and Whitelaw, and which has appeared in the August issue of the journal. It'll be discussed by Dr. David Odd, who's consultant neonatologist in the neonatal unit Southmead Hospital, Bristol, UK, who's the lead author, and Dr. Joe Falk, who's a consultant neonatologist at University Hospitals, Leicester, UK, who's also written a commentary on the article. Please can we start with you, David, to outline the paper and its background? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much for asking me to be involved. The education association between moderate and late preterm birth is starting to become more widely acknowledged with these moderate and late preterm babies appearing to have increased risks of school failure and increased need of educational support. But the underlying reason why they're not doing so well in school really still remains quite unclear. So the aim of this project was to investigate these infants who uh, we were already shown had some deficits in their school performance, if that could be demonstrated that they had cognitive impairment as well that may explain it. So we used the ALSPAC cohort to do this, which is a cohort study based in the UK, which recruited infants from 1991 to 92 in an area around Bristol. So there were about 14,000 infants recruited in this study, and in, in this particular cohort, about 700 of those were defined as moderate or late preterms. We used 32 to 36 weeks of gestation to cover both of those definitions. And what we've done is compared them with infants born at 37 to 42 weeks, and in particular looking at their IQ scores at 8 years of age. And what we found in the educational scores was very similar to other studies, about a 50% or so increase in the risk of needing educational support at sort of seven or eight years of age. But what we haven't found, or what we didn't find in this study, was any strong evidence that that was explained by their cognitive goals. And in fact, we found very little evidence at all that these children had reduction in their cognition compared to their peers. Now, as always with these non-interventional work, there are questions about the causal groups that have been investigated. And in particular here, we did have quite a lot of missing data. About 50% of the infants did have uh, missing IQ information. But because of the size of the cohort, we were at least able to come up with quite precise results. And it seems unlikely, at least in the cohort here, that there was a cognitive deficit that we were missing. So in summary, really, in this particular group of infants, it doesn't appear that the increase in their educational support is due to a measurable deficit in their cognition. Do you want to discuss this, please, Joe? Firstly, thank you for inviting me to be on this podcast, and, and thank you to David and his colleagues for this interesting paper, which I enjoyed reading. There's a lot of evidence in the literature about the sort of much-studied extremely preterm group and the, the effects of extreme prematurity on cognitive outcomes and clear evidence that there is some degree of cognitive deficit in those children born extremely preterm. And I think it's interesting to look at the sort of relationship between gestational age and an IQ score. It does seem that there is a, a sort of non-linear relationship. So, for example, there seems to be much more difference as you change from 23 weeks gestation up to 30 weeks as compared to 33 weeks up to 40 weeks. And this is sort of borne out by various different pieces of work. Now, there was quite a large Bavarian study, a longitudinal study, that looked at IQ scores across a gestational spectrum. And they, like David and his colleagues, found not much difference in IQ scores dropping down to around about 32 weeks. And then below that, there seemed to be a drop-off in IQ scores. And what was particularly interesting is they sort of speculated about a line of decreasing IQ with gestational age, extending beyond the sort of 27, 28 weeks that they started to look at the babies. 
And that, that line actually predicted the IQ scores that the first Epicure study found a few years later. So the two studies sort of dovetailed with each other quite nicely and described this sort of idea of a raising IQ score as your gestation increases from sort of 23, 24 weeks up to an inflection point of about 32 weeks and then a relatively flat line somewhere near a normal IQ score for the general population above 32 weeks. So I think the work that David sort of nicely described is perhaps supported by that. So the questions, I suppose, are whether if it's not IQ that's causing these problems in terms of educational failure in schools or educational difficulties or need for additional support, what is it that's doing that? We know that there's certainly quite extensive extra input needed for the very small babies. And I think the amount of support that sort of moderate and late preterm group need is perhaps less well-defined at the moment, but certainly there's increasing evidence supported by David's paper that they do have issues. I wonder whether David has any thoughts on sort of gestational age IQ relationship. Well, yeah, I mean, it is a very interesting association. I think one of the factors that I still don't think we've got a handle on is what percentage of this is as a reduction in the mean IQ and how much of this is an increase in the risk of a very low IQ. And it may well be that in both these populations, you know, our late and moderate preterm babies and our extreme preterm babies, we're actually looking at a slightly different mechanisms by which cognition may be affected. But I think that's one thing underlying it which might confuse our ability to interpret this. The other factor, of course, is absolutely, I mean, IQ is a very crude measure of function, although it does tend to be quite strongly associated. And indeed, it's worth pointing out, as you did, that in this paper there were some associations seen, particularly in the uh, the unadjusted univariable uh, analysis, with some measures of reading and some measures of attention and some measures of memory, which may well add up into some functional deficits, even if the underlying cognitive skills are either normal or near enough normal that we can't seem to measure a deficit. It's entirely possible that these children do have minor subtle deficits in their executive function, which particularly in, in our environments is important enough to mean they fail to function. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good point you make about there may be more than one mechanism because there's the brain immaturity aspect of being born preterm plus the additional effects of perhaps intraventricular hemorrhage, which will be more represented in the extremely preterm group than perhaps the moderate and late preterm but may still be more of an issue than the general population. And I think the earlier studies on extremely preterm work were suggesting that educational issues were driven by cognitive impairment. And that might may be true for them because I think they have a greater degree of impairment. But I think in, in this group that you're studying, it's, that's probably not the case. And I think your point about executive function is really important because the executive function in extremely preterm children does seem to be quite poor in places. And I think that's the area where they may be trying to integrate lots of different things. And for our moderate and late preterm babies, where there may be a multitude of smaller effects, whether that integration of, of information and processing it is, is somewhere where they fall down and is this sort of um, specific area of difficulty, which has perhaps been hard to quantify and, and tease out, despite the very rigorous approach to your data that you've had in terms of trying to sort of allow for various different variables. Yeah, and I think that, that that's what it comes down to then, is about the causal route mapping that we're talking about here. And in, in this particular work, we've made a number of assumptions about what we're trying to test for. And we have been fortunate in the ALSPAC cohort to have quite a rich data set where we can we, we have access to many, many variables that, to help help control for the patterning of social economic factors and so forth. 
And of course, confounding and confounding and reasons for prematurity, as you mentioned in your editorial, are probably very important reasons here. It seems naive to assume that there's going to be either this is due to confounding or this is causal because of the prematurity per se. And so a proportion of this effect is likely to be due to both of those factors. And the difficulty both in what we can do about it and quantifying this effect is going to try to be very explicit about what we're measuring and what we're trying to assess in these studies. Yes, I think that's, that's true. I mean, the, the end point is still that the preterm child has some degree of difficulty. And I suppose the by measuring and, and sort of teasing out different strands, we're trying to work out what's cause and what's association. Although I suppose from a parent's point of view, the end point is still their child has some degree of difficulty, which when it comes to thinking about follow-up and impact on society, I suppose you have to look at the global picture. No, oh, indeed. Oh, yes, yes. And coming into sort of some of the, the specifics of, of what might be causing this, you, you found sort of relatively little evidence for um, inattention, certainly in the adjusted model, perhaps in contrast to some other authors who flagged up inattention as, as more of an issue. I just wondered why there was that discrepancy or how much of an issue you thought inattention was. Well, the honest answer is I don't know why we get uh, such discrepant results in this, this area of research at the moment. So some of it may come back to the fact that we are adjusting for different factors and those factors are measured in different ways. And so what we might be seeing is just different impacts of residual and uncontrolled confounding. Or it may well be that what actually matters, perhaps more importantly, is the environment these children are brought up in. And certainly the UK health and education systems are very different to other places. And so... It may well be there was already patterns of support in place so these children are recognised early and don't necessarily end up needing the support in school that they might do in other environments. I don't know, but the, the, the reality is is that you know all the studies seem to be producing slightly different results as to what this profile of um, might underlie the, the special educational needs. Yes, yes. I think the only point where perhaps there's, there's more consistency across the studies is that there does appear to be a consensus that there are some educational additional. Yes, definitely. Um, I also wonder about behaviour. I mean, that, that wasn't something particularly that you looked at within the study, but it's um, you know, there's certainly papers that are reporting increased both internalising and externalising behaviours for moderate and late preterm children, and, and speculating as to whether that contributes to um, sort of educational difficulties. And they're also suggesting that there may be more of an impact of moderate and late preterm birth on girls rather than boys. So whilst boys have a higher prevalence of behavioural problems, the impact of being born moderate or late preterm seems to affect girls more than boys, something which was perhaps mirrored a little bit in the, the educational evaluation of key stage one results in, in the ALSPAC cohort. And I wondered how much of an impact you think behaviour may have on that. Well, I mean, yeah, I think it's probably worth noting for anyone listening to this who's not from the UK that this measure of special educational needs is a very wide implementation of any child that needs additional support. So this could be because the child is failing at school or even that needs extra assistance in getting around school or hearing aids or support in the classroom in other environments. So behaviour very much could affect very widespread um, behaviours and abilities to learn to the point where a statement in his uh, special educational needs is, is identified. It is something that we hope to look for in the, in the aspect cohort, but as I'm sure you can appreciate, it's a very complicated area to sort of sit down and define a priori what you want to test for, and the amount of measures of behaviour are obviously quite extensive to come up with something that we really want to test our, as our a priori hypothesis. Yeah. But that's definitely underway. I think if we look at the sort of the extremely preterms and the, the moderate and late preterms and whether there's sort of different things going on with perhaps the extremely preterm cohort 
have often been driven by cognition and perhaps the more mature babies having other issues there. Because within educational evaluation of the extremely preterm cohort, boys did worse than girls. Yet in the more mature ones, it seems to be girls that are more affected than boys. And I wonder whether that's in some way tied into the differing etiology of those problems, whether for the extremely preterms it's cognitive-driven, whereas for more mature populations it's behavioural attention. Yeah, perhaps. Although, of course, the boys are still doing worse than the girls, unfortunately. It's just that the impact of prematurity appears to be greater in the girls than in the boys. But overall, the boys are still needing more special educational needs input than the girls are, if you compare like with like. So it may well be that the impact of prematurity is smaller in the, in the extremely preterm group compared to the overlying educational needs that they like to have in their cognition. I don't know. Overall, the boys still do worse than the girls. So... I think it's going to need validating that, that finding in some other other areas, I suspect. Yes, I think it's more just trying to sort of dig into the, you know, the, the cause of things, you know, looking at differences of uh, you know, who's affected more by different uh, gestational ages. I suppose one of the questions is if we've identified that these children have problems, and of course they're, they're a big cohort, they're numerically much greater than the extremely preterm ones, what are we going to do with them? You know, how, how do we follow them all up? Because... I suspect your your practice in Bristol will be similar to ours, which is that we don't necessarily follow up uncomplicated, relatively mature preterm infants, and most of our clinics are filled with the more preterm ones or the ones that we've known to have problems whilst they've been with us. So a lot of these ones aren't being followed up at the moment. No. Well, I, I suppose, again, in the UK, they are being followed up. It's just not being done in a formal hospital setting. And these children all have input from health assisters and... and the, the paediatric surveillance uh, that's routine in our country. It's difficult to know what the benefit would be for that follow-up. I think that's my general feeling at the moment. Until we can identify a little bit more why they are struggling in school and what we can do about it, I'm not sure that having a targeted intervention is going to be easy to, to implement. Yes, I I'm not sure that we have an intervention particularly to implement at the moment. Although it's interesting that the, the comments about they are followed up at the moment, which of course they are by health visitors and, and mm. child health surveillance in, in the UK. Although my colleague in Leicester, who's currently undertaking a prospective study of late and moderate preterm birth, the LAM study, was recently involved in a sort of a patient and public engagement exercise as part of the research. And the perception of parents whose children have been born moderate and late preterm was that they didn't really have anywhere to go to or anyone to ask about their child's prematurity. So although they were receiving the routine child health surveillance, the perception was that they, they, they weren't particularly being supported although they also said that actually in many cases their children were doing very well. It wasn't that they wanted to go and see someone in clinic regularly, but they, they would have liked a point of contact or a forum for discussing things. I think that might, I mean, especially if they've gone through this process as parents, and it may well be something that would be a useful thing to introduce uh, as a supportive measure. I think as a risk factor, if we're just purely looking at frustration as a risk factor, there are probably more legitimate risk factors, I suppose, to identify. I mean, even if you look at things like preeclampsia, and long-term cognitive outcomes, it's probably got a greater impact than moderate and late preterm gestation. Um, and I don't think anyone's implementing a follow-up program for everyone who was born for a preeclamptic mother. I don't know if this is a very topical subject at the moment, but perhaps there is a lot of talk about these children doing badly, but the majority of the children do do well. Yes. It's obviously good that they're doing well. The, the problem, I suppose, is that most people won't perceive that it's it's a, much of a, an issue because individually they're all doing well, but collectively as a group they, they carry a, 
a reasonable burden of morbidity, but it seems to be spread relatively thin rather than the extremely preterm babies who are... No, indeed, yes, yes, absolutely. But um, I suppose what I'm saying is there's lots of other perinatal risk factors for poor outcome, yes. which we're not identifying, and they're just as legitimate risk factors. Yes, for our and they, we can't follow them all up. Some studies have looked at targeting, you know, looking at outcomes for late and moderate preterm birth in those babies that have had a more difficult neonatal course. There may be a role for exploring that in the future, but I think to start with, your work is defining as a group what they're like is the starting yeah. point, and then maybe trying to define which ones are higher risk. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if as neonatologists we already know which one of these babies are likely to do worse. Uh, it's entirely possible these are the babies that we already recognised on the bedside as having difficult deliveries, difficult birth processes, and complicated neonatal courses. So it may well be that that should be the first place to go back to. Yes. Yes, and I mean, your other point is about interventions. You know, if we were to follow them up in some way, what would we do with them? And if there is an intervention, is that a health intervention or is it perhaps more an education intervention? Because we're talking about educational issues and it may be that the schools are better placed to, to manage those and our role it would be to sort of signpost those that may need additional help, but then the intervention yeah. itself may be more school-based, I suppose. And, of course, primary prevention is another possibility, I and mean, that's being advocated in a number of editorials about trying to reduce the rate of late and moderate preterm delivery. I'm not sure we have enough evidence to support that as a, as a practice at the moment, but it's certainly something which could well be implemented if there, we find that there are causal interventional points that might make a benefit to these children. Uh, but it comes back to the, the complex mix of what's causing the problem, because if, oh, of if, if, the, if the issue is that as a fetus you're not growing desperately well and that's why you, you end up being born prematurely, there may be a point where actually you're better off delivering earlier before your growth restriction came too bad rather than waiting on and, and things getting worse. Yes. So on one hand, you may be better off having the primary prevention of not delivering early in the first place, but there will be subgroups that actually need to come out and perhaps almost needed to come out sooner. And I think it's incredibly difficult because there are so many different variables. And this, this coming back to the, the cause and the association, you know, what, what are the associates mm. of preterm birth and what, what's actually causing the problem is, is incredibly difficult to tease out, even with the sophisticated statistics that you've applied to the ASPAC cohort. And then who do we follow up and is there any value in doing that? I suppose it's not practical to follow up large numbers in clinics. I wonder what your thoughts are on things like validated parental questionnaires, for example, the Parker R questionnaire and whether there's scope for using that in the, the, the group that you've discharged from the neonatal unit that you're not following up in clinic, but they still remain potentially at risk for prematurity and potentially the other confounding factors that may also coexist. Yeah, I suppose at the moment I would suggest that all of these interventions have a cost, both financially but also in terms of potential stress for the parents. And given a limited understanding of what the problem might be and what we can do about it, I would, at the moment, be very cautious about advocating outside of a trial that's trying to answer some of those questions at the same time. I think we could be dangerously close to implementing a whole process of interventions in these children without understanding why we're doing it and what benefit we might gain from it. And there are costs associated with these things. So at the moment, I think we're far too early down this line. There's a lot of questions that we need to address first before I think we should be screening these children for what is a relatively modest increase in school failure, if we're being honest about this, compared to a lot of other risk factors, such as maternal social economic factors, which at the moment we don't screen for and we don't intervene early for. 
Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right in that there's a rather nebulous wish to do something to help them, but it's not as simple as that. And I think there's certainly a role for perhaps exploring some of these things in the context of a well-constructed trial, but to just routinely roll them out across a large population when you're not quite sure what the benefits would be. And I think given that we don't know the full extent of the issues there, the health economic evaluations that would need to underpin a, a nationwide rollout of something like this just aren't possible at the moment. No. I think that's, it's wise words to sort of not jump in and um, initiate something like that. The flip side is I think there's probably enough there to study it further within trials. You know, the trial, as I've mentioned, will be doing that. Yeah, no, you know, I think a lot of people are optimistic that the work that's being done in Leicester is going to help, if not answer some questions, but certainly identify what the questions are going to need to be for the next stage of this work. And certainly it's probably the best designed tool that we have at the moment to get some of that information in. Thank you. We've now come to the end of our podcast. Many thanks indeed to David Ard and Joe Falk for such an educational discussion. It's obviously important when so many children could potentially be affected and potentially need more help than they've perhaps been getting up till now. I hope everyone who's listened to this will get more out of the article. And just to remind anyone who wants to find the article, it's called Long-Term Cognitive Outcomes of Infants Born Moderate and Late Preterm by Odd et al., and it's in the August issue of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology.